Emilio's introductions always make me exceedingly nervous. Because the last time he introduced me, you were expecting no other than John Knox reincarnate to come up to the pulpit and thunder forth the word of God. And I'll repeat, as I said it, that, that time as well, that uh, if that's what you're expecting, you're going to be sadly disappointed. And then, uh, uh, out of all things that he could possibly ask me to preach, he asks me to expound on Romans chapter 8, verse 1, a text that I know that your pastor here is well able to expound for himself. Your pastors, plural. And I feel like just by getting up here and trying to open up this text and explain it to you, I'm denigrating the quality of this pulpit. And, and I say that in all sincerity. You guys have a tremendous blessing and privilege in this church that uh, uh, all over Latin America, uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ truly long to have, truly desire a church like this, truly desire to hear Bible teaching, solid biblical exposition, like you're hearing in this church uh, week after week. So uh, don't, don't take it for granted because many times it's so, so easy to do that. So easy to do that. Um, Let's pray. Holy Father, you are the God of all truth, the Father of mercies, and the Father of lights. In you, O God, there is no darkness or shadow of turning. There is no variation in you. You are immutably perfect in all your ways, in all your attributes, in the sum total of them, and in each one individually. In the particular, you are absolute, infinite, ineffable perfection. And we worship you, O God. We extol you. We praise You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for this glorious truth that You've given us in Your Holy Word. You say, O God, that You dwell with Him who is of a poor and contrite heart and who trembles before Your Word. Grant us the grace in this hour to truly approach Your Word with hearts humbled and bowed down in Your holy presence trembling with reverence and holy fear to submit ourselves to everything that Your Word teaches, to render before Your throne by the power of Your Holy Spirit and the grace that is in the blood of Your precious Son, a universal and entire obedience to the teaching of the text that we're about to open and expound. O God, Your Word is perfect. Your Word is sufficient, O God. Your word is a hammer that smashes the rock into pieces. Oh, Father, smash the hardness of our hearts and cause them to be tender and pliable before you. Your word, oh God, is like water. Living water, it refreshes our souls. Oh, Father, allow me to open up this word in such a way so that it would be refreshing to the hearts of your people. 
Oh God, Your Word is living. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierce us now, Father, with the truth of Your Word. May this Word cut to our hearts. May this Word convince us by the power of the Holy Spirit, Father. May this Word not just be something that is spoken forth that's merely a physical act of vibrations of vocal cords that resonate into the receptacles of our inner ears. But, oh God, may this Word be empowered and anointed by the grace of Your Holy Spirit so as to go forth as the living Word that it is, to bear fruit for Your glory, to revive, to impart life, to sanctify, to build up Your precious and glorious truth, church, O oh God, by Your truth. Oh, Father, Your Word is so glorious. Your Word is like honey to our mouths. It is sweeter than honey. It is precious. Father, please, grant me the grace to be faithful to the text. To not deviate from the truth as it is in Jesus. And grant us all grace to hear it. And to not be merely hearers of the Word, but doers of this very word and above all father as we know that this written word doesn't consist merely of ink on paper but this written word is an emanation of true revelation revelation of him who is the incarnate and living word himself of christ the son oh may jesus christ be exalted in this place May Jesus Christ be enthralled in the affections of our hearts. Grant me, Father, the ability to set forth with clarity and, 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 and conviction the all-sufficient Christ, the glorious Christ, the reigning Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that that petition of the Greeks to your apostle, and when he said, when they, said, when they told them, we would see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Oh, may your people see Jesus. May we all see Jesus now in your holy word and be conformed evermore into his perfect image. We pray and ask this in his name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I invite you to stand together with me for the reading of God's Word. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Our text is, uh, it's short, it's just one verse, it's succinct, it's, uh, it's pretty straightforward, it's simple enough for a child to understand it. It's one of those verses that I'm sure all of us are more than familiar with. It's one of those verses that no doubt the vast majority of us have it pretty much memorized. It's one of those texts like John 3.16. But in, the, in spite of the 
straightforward, clear-cut simplicity of this text. I think we have to admit at the same time that it's, it's so profound that it'll take us all of eternity to even begin to grasp the depths of it. I would say to even scratch the surface of it. I mean, this text is glorious. And when we think about heaven and we think about uh, arriving into that state of perfection in which we're able to discern the truth of God without the error and ignorance that is entailed in this current order of flesh in which we find ourselves, uh, we think of all these great uh, interpretive mysteries of the Bible uh, questions about you know the deep things of theology and uh, hermeneutical perplexities that we will instantly be able to understand in glory as we as we see him face to face and no longer uh, see in in part but the truth is is that many of those mysteries Many of the things that we struggle with right now, many of the hermeneutical difficulties that we face as we read the Scriptures will be instantly resolved, at least in a preliminary and initial way in our own understanding, when we enter glory. But to fathom the depths of the truth of this verse will take us an eternity of eternities. Because when the Apostle Peter said in chapter 1, verse 12 of his book, that there are things pertaining to this gospel into which the angels long to look, no doubt that holy and inspired apostle of God had in mind the truth that is revealed here in Romans 8, 1. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No doubt this is a great part of that wonder and awe with which the angels of God marvel at the beauty of the Gospel. And there are so few texts in the Bible that are so well known as this one, but in the midst of our familiarity with it, we're no doubt in danger of allowing it to slip. It's so easy to have it firmly lodged within our minds while the truth and the power of it is utterly absent from our hearts. I mean, how many of us can quote it from memory at the same time that we fail to truly sense the delight of it, to have the affections of our heart go forth in a conscientious acquiescence in the glorious truth that is here contained in these words. So I just want to set forth the truth of this text in a practical and experiential manner so so as to help us to catch a glimpse of the glory of the of the matchless grace of God that is uh, uh, here revealed. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think right at the outset here as we attempt to expound this text, uh, 
it would be proper for us to confess the great difficulty that lies before us. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, Devoted to God, references who I would consider to be the greatest of the Puritan theologians when he says, quote, John Owen once wrote that in a sense there are only two basic issues with which a minister of the gospel has to deal. The first presents an evangelistic challenge, persuading those who are under the dominion of sin that this is the truth about them. The other, he says, it is the pastoral challenge, persuading those who are no longer under sin's dominion that this is who they really are. And that's my goal in this message. I want to persuade those who are truly in Christ that this is in fact their real and ultimate identity before God. That they are no longer under the dominion of sin. That they're no longer under condemnation. And that they are viewed in the sight of God legally, forensically, and positionally with all the very same perfection that Christ as the God-man has wrought out for us and His life of absolute and universal obedience to all the law of God and the very righteousness that He has laid down His life to establish as He has placated the just wrath of the Almighty. We are in Christ. That is our position. That is how God views us. In spite of the fact that many times we don't feel like it. In spite of the fact that as we look at ourselves, we, we feel kind of a lot like Paul describes in Romans 7 in our experience. But the fact is that we are in Christ. If we're truly in Christ. And now there's a great danger here that is presented before us as we attempt to open up this text. Because even as there's an evangelistic challenge and a pastoral challenge that has to do with the work of the minister, uh, corresponding to that also lies before us the grave danger of speaking peace, peace to those who do not have peace with God. And all of us are familiar with that. When a text like this will be quoted and it will be expounded with absolutely no qualifier whatsoever and absolutely no description or explication whatsoever as to what it entails to be in Christ and how a sinner is taken out of himself and inserted into Christ so as to be safe from God's wrath in Christ. And so the great danger that is before us is taking the sweet consolation of a gospel promise like that that's found here in this text and to offer that consolation to one who should have no peace of conscience and no consolation whatsoever before God, but to the contrary, should be alarmed and should be fleeing with all their might from the wrath that is to come. And so that's the preliminary qualification that I, I, I want to be very clear here right at the outset of our 
exposition. I want to speak to those who are in Christ, to those who are truly in Christ, to those who have exercised a true, sound, and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to the justification of their eternal soul before God. Not to those who are outside of Christ. Because to those who are outside of Christ, this text offers no peace to them in their current condition. It offers hope to them that they can, they can exit that condition to enter into the condition of peace with God. But that's the qualification. But I want to open up this text so that we can see that this, this is our identity before God. No doubt when the Apostle Paul wrote these words, that's what he's trying to do. He's assuring the Christians at Rome that there is no condemnation for them. Paul, as he writes this text, is not operating as an academic theologian. What he's setting forth here is not merely an abstract theological truth so that we can sit before it and perplex our minds in terms of the, the, the mysteries of it. And, uh, you know, uh, what does it have to do with the ordo salutis, the order of salvation? And what does it have to do in terms of the uh, eternal decrees of God and so forth? But he wrote this text rather uh, pastorally. He wrote it so as to offer practical and experiential help to the believers who formed part of the church of Christ at Rome. He wanted them to understand that there is no condemnation for them so that they would be helped uh, in their assurance before God. And what this is really is the primary basis of our, our assurance. That's, that's what it is. The doctrine of justification answers the question of how can a man be right with God? And the doctrine of justification forms the primary foundation of the Christian's assurance before God. When we talk about assurance, there are a number of aspects of that assurance and a number of sources of it. One is the evidences of uh, God's saving grace that are at work in our own lives. First John talks about that. One is the witness of the Holy Spirit. But the ground, the, the primary ground of our assurance before God is the perfect legal righteousness that we have in Christ by faith alone in Christ alone. And so that's what he's writing so that we can understand. This issue of assurance is an all-important one because it affects our joy before God. It affects our peace before God. It affects our service in the kingdom of God. It affects our sanctification. I mean, just dealing with this in a practical level, how can one excel in sanctification if they're not even sure if God is frowning upon them or smiling upon them? Because even as we, 
study the Bible, a, a basic means of grace as simple as daily Bible study. As we open up the Scriptures, if we're battling with the question as to whether we're truly in a state of grace or whether perhaps we're a child of wrath that's still in the state of nature with the Almighty God's wrath abiding upon us, how can we study the Bible with vigor and with zeal and with that confidence before God, with that faith that lays hold on His promises and appropriates them to the blessing and edification and building up of our inner man? We can't do it unless we're assured of this salvation. And so this is basic. It's basic to the Christian life. It's basic to service, to evangelism. It's basic to the life of the church. It's basic to everything that we're dealing with in our Christianity. And note something here in the text. When he says, therefore there is now no condemnation in order to establish as he's already done previously here in this epistle, the primary foundation of our assurance for salvation. Notice how he does it by calling attention to the fact of our standing in Christ. In Christ. That's, that's what he says. He's talking about the, the reality of experiential union with Jesus Christ. And so the fact is, is he's, he's not calling attention to something present per se in the life of the believer. He's not calling attention to our personal holiness here. He's not calling attention to our own performance. He's not calling attention to our obedience of the law or lack thereof. He's not calling attention to our missionary zeal or to our prayer life. He's not calling attention to our knowledge of the Bible. What he calls attention to is the reality of our union with Jesus Christ. It's as if he tells us to lift up our eyes and to behold the crucified and risen Son of God reigning in His all-sufficient glory so as to remove us from all confidence in the flesh and to cause us to deposit the entirety of our hope and our confidence in Christ alone. He says there is now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That word condemnation speaks of liability to punishment. Liability to punishment. It's the consequence of having transgressed the law of God and of having incurred the penal sanction of the law's holy injunction contrary to us that results in judicial retribution. This condemnation is punitive subjugation to the just judgment of God. So in this context here, condemnation refers to the forensic verdict of everlasting damnation that is understood to be declared by God Himself, the God who is impeccably just, the God who is the just judge whose ways are characterized by impeccable, unbending, and inflexible justice. 
And that's condemnation. Condemnation is set forward in the New Testament, and especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul, as the antithesis of justification. So later here, the book of Romans, when the Apostle says, who is he who condemns? You know, it's, it's God who justifies. Who, who can bring any charge against us? You know, God justifies us. Christ died for us, but condemnation and justification are set forth as antithetical. And just as uh, condemnation entails a forensic decree on the part of God, are you familiar with that terminology, uh, forensic? Uh, we, we, we speak of forensic studies that have to do with things like crime scene investigations. It has to do, uh, forensic describes that which has to do with legal, legal matters, legal uh, proceedings, the legal sphere of things. And so when we're talking about condemnation, we're talking about God's legal declaration that we are deserving of His just punishment resulting in eternal hell. And that's how we can read this verse. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ means, in essence, there is no hell for those who who are in Christ. They have been saved from eternal punishment. They have been saved from that just judgment of God. Condemnation is a legal state of all of us by default. That's what the Apostle says in chapter 5, verse 16, when he says, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. The the original transgression of Adam as he consumed the the, the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil constituted a violation of the law of God. Of God. It trespassed the boundaries of what God had established for Adam not to trespass. And so that transgression resulted in condemnation for all men. He repeats that in verse 18. So that as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. So there's no exception. Just as all of us who are of Adam's uh, natural posterity, we receive the imputation of the full guilt of Adam's sin resulting in condemnation. All those who are, in, uh, who are represented federally or covenantally by Adam, they inherit the guilt of his sin and they inherit also his corrupt nature. But we can see clearly here in this text that this results in judgment. Judgment arose, resulting in condemnation. That's all of us. That's all of us by nature. That's all of us by default. You don't have to be extraordinarily bad or a really, really bad person in in human terms, in order to incur this condemnation on the part of God, all you have to do is be born as a son or daughter of Adam. 
And all of us have indeed been born that way. So that's all of our not only condition, but also position before God by default. And so this condemnation consisting in uh, forensic liability to the eternal judgment of God consists of objective guilt before God. It is an objective condemnation uh, of which our apostle speaks here in this text. It's not merely an internal sense of guilt. It's not merely a subjective consciousness of shame or blameworthiness. It's not merely a stigma of a conscience that's been pierced with a sense of the guilt of sin. No doubt when the Spirit of God is working on us and we hear the gospel and, and, and He reveals to us the, the holiness of God and the righteous requirement of the law of God, we feel our conscience pierced with the guilt of sin. We feel an inner sense of condemnation before God. We feel what the apostle describes in his second epistle to the Corinthians uh, when he talks about a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. We feel that. But that's not what the apostle is talking about per se in and of itself here in this text. He's not talking about whether you feel condemned or not. He's not talking about whether we have a, 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 a conscious sense of this condemnation or not. He's talking about the fact that all of us by nature abide under this objective condemnation before God and that we're no longer under it if we're truly in Christ. It has nothing to do with our feelings. It has nothing to do with our emotions. It has nothing to do with how we feel inwardly that God feels toward us that day as believers. But it has everything to do with our objective, positional standing before God. It's an absolute, objective reality that abides over the head of all those, speaking of condemnation, of all those who are outside of Christ, whether they realize it or not. And it's the very thing that abided over our heads, brothers and sisters, before we came to know the Lord. There's a lot of good books that are being published nowadays. Uh, books written, you know, from the perspective of uh, historic Reformed theology and I mean, there's great stuff on systematics and biblical theology and, you know, Christology and soteriology and even ecclesiology and, and so forth. Uh, but one of the titles that I have not seen published in recent years, uh, the, one of the subjects, uh, has to do with the sinfulness of sin. I, I'm not seeing many of those books being pumped out <laughs> nowadays. But if you go back into the epic of the uh, Puritans, Puritan pastors and theologians were writing with frequency and urgency and continually on the sinfulness of sin and the assurance of the believer. But speaking of the sinfulness of sin, that was one of the primary themes of their preaching 
And if there's one thing that we lack in the, our, our, modern, uh, our modern context here in the, in the church of Christ and in Christianity in this nation, and I would say even in the midst of the Reformed world with all its great theology, what we're truly missing is a revelation of the holiness of God and of our own sinfulness, our own utter and deplorable and abominable and vile sinfulness in His sight. Because we can't grasp the true depth of the glory and the magnitude of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of this Gospel unless we have truly grasped the enormity and the severity of our sinfulness before God. A sinfulness which consists not only in the contamination, corruption, and depravity of our nature, but that also consists in objective guilt that registers legally before the judgment bar of heaven. I have a book by Jeremiah Burroughs who was one of the Puritans who sat on the assembly that formulated the Westminster Standards, the Catechisms and Directory of Public Worship and not least of uh, which consisted of uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And he wrote a book called The Evil of Evils. And that book is a series of about 50 meditations. Each chapter is a distinct meditation. And the whole point of the book is that the least sin is infinitely more vile and evil and abominable in the sight of God than the greatest affliction that anybody in time or eternity could ever endure, Christ only accepted. But the least sin is greater than the greatest affliction. Fifty-something reasons on why that's the case. If we sit there and sit here and reflect on that, we could probably scarcely come up with five or ten. But he's, he was preaching that Sunday after Sunday. It's about a year's worth of a, a little over a year of uh, Sunday morning expositions from his pulpit to a congregation of, I think it was close to a thousand people. I, who sits under that kind of preaching nowadays? Where are the churches where a thousand people are congregating every Lord's Day to hear a series of uh, 50 sermons on why? Eddie, what we would consider to be a teeny weeny little itty bitty sin is infinitely worse in the sight of God than all of the eternal torment of hell, of all the combined torments of the damned culminated together. And when you really think about that, I mean, why did the Puritans labor at such length to speak of the sinfulness of sin so that we could just feel really bad about ourselves? So that they could just grope around and moan and say all day, every day, oh, wretched man that I am, I think God is angry with me. No. You know why they did it? They did it because they knew the truth of the text 
that our very apostle here expounds in the fifth chapter of Romans that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And the intention of Burroughs and the other Puritans that would preach and write and publish on this subject was not so that the faith of the people of God would be would, would, would suffer damage and be shaken and so that they would struggle with assurance. It was all to the contrary. And so their faith could be built up and so that their assurance could be strengthened and so that they could see sin for what it truly is in the light of the infinite and enormous and immense and ineffable holiness of the glorious God so that they would catch glimpses of the magnitude and depth of His amazing and glorious grace so their, their hearts would be truly invigorated and enthralled with a sense of that grace. Many, many read them nowadays and they totally misunderstand the intention of, of what they're doing and the practical results and the fruit that they saw in their preaching. Why did thousands flock to hear Burroughs and Bunyan and John Owen and so forth as they expounded on these truths? Why? Because the Spirit of God was moving in power and building up the saints of God so that they would glory not in the flesh, not in their own performance, but in Christ Jesus. So if we're to understand how and, and why and the, and the magnitude of how there is no condemnation for us in Christ, the first thing we need to grasp is the reality and the depth and the intensity and the fierceness of the condemnation that is owing to all of us by nature and by default. Now what's amazing here in this text is that little word no. That little word no. There is no, no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That little word no is, is, is precisely designed to be there by the Apostle Paul and the very Spirit of God who inspired him so as to, as it were, leap off the page with a particular emphasis. Because that little word, no, speaks of the definitive and absolute removal of all condemnation in the sight of God. In other words, there doesn't remain some condemnation for us as we're in Christ. There remains absolutely none. All condemnation is utterly absent. It's totally gone. It is eliminated with irreversible finality. And so that little word, no, speaks of grace. But not just grace in the sense that the typical Bible dictionary defines it. I have a problem with how many of them simply define it as unmerited favor. 
It is the unmerited favor of God. But it's more than the unmerited favor of God. It is the glorious, ineffable, positive favor of God in the face of all radical demerit on our part. It's so much favor in the face of demerit that the demerit itself is not only mitigated, the demerit is not only diminished, the demerit is not only lessened, the demerit is totally canceled, it is eradicated, it is obliterated, and positive blessings of unspeakable privilege assume its place. So this isn't just any grace. This is grace that reverses all condemnation. It's grace that undoes all sin's doing. It's grace that not only meets the negative demand that is incurred by our violation of the law of God, but it's grace that entails the imputation of a positive favor that commands all the positive favor and love and delight of Almighty God. This is a grace that bestows blessing in the place of cursing, heaven in the place of hell, divine favor in the place of wrath. This is the grace that results in peace of God. I mean, the peace with God. Objective peace with God where nothing but pure and necessary enmity once resided. So as he says in chapter 5, which is leading up to this here in the argument, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, grace is not only there in our lives, Grace doesn't just take the place of condemnation. Grace is reigning. Grace is triumphant. This is radical grace. This is free grace. This is mighty grace. This is victorious grace. This is sovereign grace. This is grace that overthrows all obstacles that would oppose it. This is grace that conquers our fears. This is grace that triumphs over judgment. This is grace that casts down the accuser of the brethren. This is grace that soothes the afflicted in wounded conscience of the believer in Christ. This is grace that should cause our hearts to do nothing less than sing with joy unspeakable and full of glory to the honor and praise of God. The question is, does this grace reign so reign in our affections and in our hearts in such a way so that we are conscious of it? Whether we're conscious of it or not doesn't change the fact that it is objectively reigning if we're in Christ. But the intention of the apostle here in this text is that we would come to grips with the objective reality of this truth in such a way so that our hearts enter into. And the reason there's no condemnation for us in Christ is due to the reality of our justification, as we've said. 
And that's the language of the courtroom. This is talking about the judicial proceedings of God. Justification is the act of God's free grace whereby uh, He pardons all of our sins and He declares us to be righteous in His sight owing solely to the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. It's entirely legal. It's entirely positional. Justification biblically doesn't entail any renovative element or any transformative element element. We're not justified by anything done by us or wrought within us. Our justification is perfect in the sight of God. It is invariable in the sight of God. It is not subject to degrees. It is not subject to fluctuation. It is not partial. It is not incremental. Justification is absolute and perfect. It is, in the words of uh, Martin Luther, extra nos. Extra nos is the Latin. It means outside of us. Justification takes place in the judicial proceedings of God toward us. It's outside of us. And the righteousness by which we're justified is not a righteousness that is uh, attained by us or having anything to do with our actual condition internally, morally. Justification is due to the righteousness of Christ, which is external to us. And we're placed in union with Christ, and we receive His righteousness. And in that sense, in communion with Christ, it's, it's in us. But justification itself is a legal decree that is extra nos, outside of us. And so therefore, it's permanent. It's, it's also permanent. And it's perpetual. In chapter 5, verse 1, the apostle says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So having been justified by faith speaks of a past completed act. In the past, if we're in Christ, we have already been definitively and perfectly justified. We can't be any more justified than we already are the moment we exercise saving faith in Christ. We can't grow in justification. We cannot attain to greater uh, degrees of justification. The moment one believes in Christ, the moment the most wicked and vile and chief of sinners believes in Jesus Christ... In the midst of an atmosphere of sin, he is just as justified in the sight of God as the saint will be after having spent millions and millions of ages well into the span of eternity uh, fellowshipping in the immediate presence of God in perfect, glorified holiness. They are both just as justified in the sight of God. So having been justified by faith, he says, we have peace with God. We have. We currently have. It's our uh, present position before God as if it were our present possession. This is the reality. So that past act of justification being definitive and uh, declared by God with utter finality with regard to the believer results in a present tense right 
standing, a present tense positional right, righteousness in the sight of God, a perfect righteousness in the sight of God that is ongoingly present tense. It is continual. It is perpetual. It is every day. It is today. It is tomorrow. It's a year from now. It's in all of eternity. Justification when it is truly declared. Justification when a believer in Christ receives this benefit of the redemptive work of the Savior. This justification is eternal. Because it's rooted and grounded in the all-sufficiency of the cross of Christ. And so it meets all the judicial needs occasioned by our sin. It fulfills those needs. It satisfies divine justice. It ushers us into a state of perfect legal right standing with God. So tying all this together with the Apostles' purpose and dictating these words here in uh, chapter 8, verse 1, We know that he's writing this with the intention of fortifying our faith and the assurance of our salvation. It's just what he said in verse 38 of the same chapter when he said, For I am convinced, I am convinced that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am convinced. You see, that word convinced speaks of certainty. It speaks of assurance. And what did he have assurance of here when when he spoke in that text? Did he just have assurance of his present right standing with God? It's a question. Did he just have assurance of his present right standing with God? No, he didn't. He had assurance of future and eternal right standing with God. And yet he says here in the present tense, I am convinced. Not just, I hope to be convinced in the future. I hope to be persuaded when my faith fluctuates in the He doesn't say that. He says, I am convinced. I have this rock-solid certainty that nothing, no devil in hell, no adversity, No temptation, no trial or tribulation that I will face in this life. Even if I have to face the resist temptation unto the shedding of my blood, I am convinced that nothing is able to separate me from the love of God, from eternal salvation. Now, what is he basing that assurance on? I can tell you what he's not basing it on. He's not basing it on his own moral resolutions in the sight of God. He's he's not saying, I think I'm so strong in faith and I think I'm so holy and I think I'm so obedient to the commandments of God that I'm sure that I'll never succumb to any temptation. No, he's grounding his assurance there on the objective right standing that he has with God. The God who has justified him. The Christ who has died for him to remove his condemnation objectively. So you see, our subjective 
internal sense of assurance before God is to be rooted and grounded in the first place on our objective, absolute, perfect, eternal, immutable, irrevocable right standing with God by virtue of our justification in Christ. So that's because of that the, the Apostle says in 2 Timothy 1.12, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. So there we see clearly, he, he speaks of uh, having believed in God through Christ in the past tense. I know him in whom I have believed. And yet he's convinced that that past act of faith, which continues to be an ongoing and present faith in Christ, because it's a true and it's a living faith. And when faith is living and true, it doesn't die. It's kept by the power of God even. Because it's by grace. But that past faith, I have believed, results in a present persuasion, I am convinced of a rock-solid, infallible future hope. He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. You see it? That's future salvation. So if you look at the, the, the confessions of faith that flow out of the Reformed tradition, namely the Westminster and the 1689 and other uh, like, like confessions, but those two in particular speak of an infallible assurance of faith that is possible. That the believer in Christ not only can, but should experience. Now that assurance, it, it clarifies, is not of the essence of faith. Faith is not assurance. Because if that were the case, then every time a believer struggles with the assurance of their salvation, they would essentially be guilty of unbelief. And if they didn't know whether they're saved or not, then they would be basically uh, uh, incredulous in the, in the sight of the, uh, 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 b- before the claims of the gospel. They, they would be an unbeliever. The fact that one struggles with assurance would mean that they're not in the faith. So faith is not of the essence of a, or assurance is not of the essence of faith. Strong faith results in strong assurance. Weak faith results in weak assurance. Faith is what justifies before God, not assurance. And if faith is strong, it justifies. And guess what? If faith is weak in the sight of God, even though it's a fluctuating faith, even though it's a weak faith, even though it's a faith that is buffeted uh, with many assaults of Satan and many doubts and many temptations, weak faith justifies just as efficaciously in the sight of God as the strongest faith of the strongest apostle, as the apostle Paul himself. That's why Peter speaks of those who have... uh, who have a like precious faith, describing his own faith and those who have a faith that is just as precious as his own faith in the sight of God. Because even though none of us have faith that is as strong and firm as the faith of Petros, of Peter the Rock, our faith is just as precious as his 
faith because it's by the grace of God and it is just as efficacious to result in the very same salvation that Peter and Paul experience. And so, the weakest Christian that's buffeted with the most doubts and the most temptations and who most struggles with assurance of salvation is just as saved, just as justified, just as perfectly positionally righteousness in the sight of God. He's... Uh, uh, just as much abiding under the judicial favor of God as the most holy apostle, as Peter or Paul. And we can be sure of our salvation through an infallible assurance because it's an uh, assurance that is that is worked within our souls by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God doesn't lie. And the Spirit of God produces assurance. The Spirit of God does not lie. He testifies infallibly. So the very nature of the assurance that the Spirit of God gives us is an assurance which cannot err. And it's also an assurance based on the Word of God. Because we embrace the promises of God by faith. And the Word of God can't lie. The Word of God is also infallible. And so that assurance is fallible. That's actually what distinguished the Reformers and the Puritans from the Roman Catholics in terms of the doctrine of assurance and justification. We can be assured of our eternal salvation, that we will never perish, that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Speaking of His special, benevolent, redemptive love toward us as His children, because we have truly been justified in His sight. Justification entails radical grace, lavish grace, grace that is fathomless, grace that boggles the the imagination, grace that takes, it's as if a, a, a devil were taken and forgiven of all his sins and Accepted as a son of God. Because even though we weren't the devil and even though we weren't a demon, we were a son of the devil. We were children of wrath by nature. We were sons of the evil in John chapter 8. That God is freely forgiven and now calls us sons. And how is that possible if not for the righteousness of the Son? that has been established for us through His life of obedience and death at Calvary and resurrection from the dead. And so that's basically what Paul's getting at here in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's, it's as if he is saying there is complete assurance for us. Not because of some kind of feigned perfection in us. Not because we're super saints. But the reason is because of the objective reality of our judicial position in grace, a position we enjoy due to our relationship with Christ. So when we struggle, when we struggle with a personal sense of assurance and we doubt our own salvation, and we're overwhelmed with a sense of our own sins and shortcomings in the sight of God, something that is not foreign to the experience of, I think, every single true believer in 
Christ. And our hearts are terrified and buffeted by the good demands of the just law of God. And we see how we don't match up to it. And then when we examine ourselves and as we behold what we evaluate is a pathetic condition of soul, a pathetic spiritual condition before God, we realize our prayerlessness. We realize that even when we do pray, we don't pray with the fervency and the intensity and the faith with which we ought to pray. We realize that as we enclose ourselves in the closet of secret prayer, as if to shut ourselves into the holy sanctuary of God and to bask in His immediate presence, that sometimes doubts and unbelief and temptations and even lusts spring forth within this flesh that make us feel more contaminated than ever. When we struggle with our lack of evangelistic zeal, when we look out at the lost world and we think it's so pathetic, it's, it's so sad, it's so tragic what, what, what they're experiencing and, and how lost they are and how they don't know God and how they haven't perceived the precious treasure that we know in Christ. And, the, and then we think, and, and yet I, I look at them oftentimes, I, I perceive them with this, coldness in my heart. Compassion is not moved for them as it was uh, in the heart of Christ as He perceived the multitudes and His heart was moved to compassion. We get frustrated with them for, the, for their sin. We view them with scold. Many times it's self-righteousness. We struggle with selfishness. We struggle in so many ways. And even as we examine ourselves, if we're not careful, we can fall into this rut of endless introspectionism. Or we turn our eyes off of Christ and we place them onto ourselves. And, you know, this thing about introspection is a really delicate issue. Because the fact is, is that in many circles nowadays, and even in Calvinistic circles, uh, what they're telling us is that we really shouldn't examine ourselves truly in the light of the perfect mirror of the law of God is revealed in Scripture so as to see the imperfect, the moral imperfections that abide within us of our lack of sanctification and our, our, our sins. But they're telling us that we should simply forget about all that and think only of Christ and only of justification. And that's an error. The Scripture tells us to, command, to, to examine ourselves. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that each one should examine himself and judge himself as he goes to participate in the Lord's Supper. The psalmist cries out, Lord, search me and try me and see if there not be any wicked way in me. Imploring God to search him by the illuminating, gracious light of his Holy Spirit so that the psalmist himself could come to recognize the remaining sinfulness that yet abided 
within him. We are to examine ourselves. I, I would say we're to examine ourselves daily, for that's the implication of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, as we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Uh, how do we know what the debts are for which we're pleading with God to forgive us from if we don't examine ourselves in the light of the holy, just, and good law of God according to the Scriptures. We need to examine ourselves. But the trap there is that if we fall into a morbid introspectionism, and we examine ourselves not in an evangelical way, but in a legalistic way. And we remove Christ from our sight. We remove our eyes from Christ as the object, as the all-sufficient object of our confidence and hope and trust. And we begin to look to ourselves for our confidence of assurance before God. When you fall into that and Christ is obscured from the vision from, from, from your eyes, that's when one really begins to struggle. That's when one loses confidence, loses the boldness of true faith. That is disastrous to true faith. And I think Luther knew that more than anybody. And Luther spent so much time um, preaching on this. Uh, I, I know of a pastor that whenever he meets somebody that uh, struggles with assurance of salvation, he tells them, go back and read the historic creeds of the church, the articles on justification, and study them and meditate on them. And he tells them that because uh, he says... Uh, almost always as he's counseling people that are struggling with assurance, more often than not, it's because there's a fundamental flaw in their understanding of justification and of their confidence in Christ. Luther said this, quote, Faith, if it is to be sure and steadfast, must lay hold upon nothing else but Christ alone. And in the conflict and terrors of conscience, it has nothing else to lean on but this precious pearl, Christ Jesus. So, he who apprehends Christ by faith, although he be terrified with the law and oppressed with the weight of his sins, yet he may, he may be bold to glory that he is righteous. How? Even by that precious jewel, Christ Jesus, whom he possesses by faith. And so, when we're oppressed, Luther says, by the weight of our sins, when our conscience is weighed down with a sense of our guilt, of our unworthiness in the sight of God, he says we can glory that we are righteous before God. The exact opposite of how we feel, in other words. Because as we feel like that, what faith does is it takes us out of ourselves. You see, and it causes us to take refuge in Christ and in Christ alone. That preposition ace in, in John's Gospel, John 3.16, he who believes in Christ, so that the one believing, whosoever believes in Him, to believe in Christ. The preposition ace uh, uh, followed by the object which 
carries the connotation of not only uh, beholding Christ as the object of faith, but it, the, the grammatical instruction there implies, uh, according to good commentators like D.A. Carson and Leon Morris, that faith is something that brings us out of ourselves. It takes us out of ourselves. It causes us to exit ourselves and it inserts us into Christ as if the implication of that preposition and that grammatical construction is not only to believe in Christ, but to believe into Christ. Into Christ. To refuge in Christ. And that's what Luther's saying. It's to refuge in Christ. So the more guilty you feel, the more condemned you feel, the more vile and wicked and unworthy you feel, oh, may that all the more push you to not trust in yourself. May that all the more impel you and compel you by the truth of God's Word to refuge in Christ as your only righteousness before God. Your only righteousness in, in the sense of your right standing before God, your, your relationship with God, the basis of your relationship with God. So it's interesting in this light how the apostle says, therefore. You see that? The verse starts with the word therefore. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that word is not there just to fill up space. It's not superfluous. There's nothing unnecessary in the Word of God. We believe that every jot and tittle is inspired. We believe that every grammatical form, every particular word, every original mark in the original text is there by divine design. And that's definitely the case here in this with this therefore. Because it's a reference to what Paul was saying previously. And what it signifies is that the declaration of no condemnation of chapter 8 verse 1 is a logical inference from what precedes. And what precedes? What precedes? <laughs> Seven, there you go, seven. <laughs> I hope you all are paying attention here. And what immediately precedes is 7.25. Well, 24 to 25. When he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And in, the, in the previous discourse there, in that pericope of uh, chapter 7, he's talking about the power and presence and influence of indwelling sin. John Owen wrote an excellent book on it. An excellent book. But it's indwelling sin. And then he gets to 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with, the fle with my flesh, the law of sin. So that therefore, there is now no condemnation is declared in the light of the reality of the fact that he is a wretched man by nature. Even as a saint of God, in and of himself, he is not perfectly and existentially and internally righteous in the sight of God. 
He's been definitively sanctified. He's been set set aside from the dominating power of the reign of sin. He's been made experientially holy as a practice as he's been set free from the slavery of sin. But he's not yet been perfectly free from the contaminating reality of the power of indwelling sin within him. And so there's this battle between his mind, between his, what he defines as the inner man who loves the law of God, who delights in the law of God, who delights in the holiness and the righteousness of God. Between that on the one hand, and on the other hand, this sin that dwells within him, against which he is battling, which he is daily mortifying, which he is daily struggling with. And it's in the light of that that he says there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. So in spite of the fact that we're aware of sin that rises up from within us, that contaminates even our most holy duties before God, that finds us when we least expect it, in spite of this sin that exerts its influence, this sin that we hate, this sin that we abhor, this sin that we are daily begging God to liberate us from, this sin that causes us to groan within ourselves, eagerly longing for the redemption of the body and the manifestation of what we truly are and what we shall be when we see Him as He is. But this sin that so weighs us down, it's in the light of this that the Apostle can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's what Romans 4 verse 5 says. But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies thee, who? Ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. His faith is credited as righteousness. When God justifies, He justifies us in an ungodly state. And even though in the logical order of the application of redemption, Regeneration precedes the exercise of faith and therefore the act of justification. Not chronologically, but at least in terms of logical order there. In spite of that fact, in spite of the fact that the justified have been made saints definitively by the inward transformative work of the Spirit of God, the decree of justification has nothing to do with their inner condition. It's not based on their regeneration. It's not based on their in-righteousness. It's not based on their obedience or their holiness. God justifies the ungodly. And even as saints of God before God, as those who know God, as those who do not practice sin and cannot practice sin, at the same time, if we want to speak in an absolute sense in the presence of God, we are still sinners in the sense of being indwelt by sin and contaminated by it. And yet we're justified. Simultaneously just and sinner, Luther said. He said, in ourselves we're sinners. In Christ we're righteous. In ourselves we're far from perfect. In Christ we have perfect righteousness. 
So that's why our text says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ. Because that's our true identity. Our true identity is not with this present order of flesh and indwelling sin. That's not who we are. That's a transient reality. That's not the transcendent and eternal reality. Who we are, John, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it's not yet uh, appeared what we shall be. But who we truly are will be openly made manifest as we are transformed and glorified into the perfect moral image of Christ in the last day. That's the ultimate reality. And that's what is the reality, the spiritual reality of us even now in part in which we can rejoice. Our identity is not with this world. Our identity is not with the flesh. Our identity is not with sin. Our identity is not with Satan and his angels. Our identity is in Christ. That's who we are. And if you've embraced the Son of God in living faith, oh, let me implore you, don't let anybody shake your confidence. Don't let anybody or anything convince you that your identity is not bound up in and with the Son of God, the all-sufficient Christ, who is the perfect embodiment of our righteousness in the presence of God. When the Apostle speaks here of being in Christ, what he's speaking of, well, there's, there's three aspects of union with Christ. One is uh, uh, the union of decree, that is God before the foundation of the world chose us in Christ. In Christ. We weren't born yet, didn't exist yet, Christ didn't come and die yet, but we were considered and contemplated in the mind of God in terms of those who were in Christ. Then in the fullness of time, Christ became incarnate, Christ fully identified with our humanity, and Christ represented us as our mediator in the sight of God, being constituted our covenantal head in the presence of God, that is covenantal or incarnational union with Christ, that also transpired before we were born. But there's a third aspect of union with Christ, and that's the experiential and personal union with Christ. And that's in the moment we truly believe in Christ and we trust in Him, we are placed in a union with Him by the Spirit of God, so as to be made partakers of the redemptive and salvific fullness that resides in His very person. And not the least, speaking of the benefits that reside in Him, uh, uh, one of those benefits is the forensic righteousness that He established. And so, as we trust in Him, we're placed in a union with Him, and so therefore, we receive His righteousness. You know what that means. It's not a legal fiction. It's not a legal fiction. It's not what some say. That God considers you to be righteous even though you're not. And even though there's no real righteousness there. I mean, that's true in a sense, but in another sense it's not true. The fact is, is that As we are placed into union with Christ, God credits us with the real and true 
righteousness that Jesus Christ established and embodies. So it's not an abstract, fictional righteousness. This is a real righteousness that we possess by faith before God. We need to renovate our minds with this because many times we don't feel that way. I mean, never. <laughs> we don't ever feel that way. But that's, that's the truth. It's in, in union with, with Him. How is it in Him? Because it's His. It's established by Him. We're no longer under the laws of a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned. We've been set free from the verdict of condemnation decreed by the law. And yet at the same time, we are under obligation to obey the moral law of God as a rule of life. Even so, our failure to perfectly obey the moral law of God, even as a rule of life, does not contradict or annul our perfect justification that we have in Christ. So why is there no condemnation in Christ? Yeah, concluding here. Why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Because there's no condemnation for Christ Himself. Just for for a believer in Christ to fall under condemnation, to fall back under the wrath of God, it would be easier for Christ Himself to come again under the verdict of condemnation and the wrath of God that He already bore and already supported and already assuaged at the cross. Because Christ suffered our hell on the cross. Christ bore our condemnation at the cross. When it says there's no condemnation for those in Christ, the apostle is not saying that God has simply forgotten about His law, that God simply no longer applies His law, that God has simply chosen to exercise mercy in the place of justice. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is all to the contrary. It's that justice has been satisfied. It's that condemnation has gone forth, not mitigated, not denigrated, not debilitated, not weakened in any sense, but that the full force of condemnation and of the full force of the eternal wrath of God that the sinner deserves has fallen in full fierce force upon the head of the crucified Son of God at Calvary. And so right now, I can be convinced and fully persuaded that even though Judgment Day is yet future for me, and you can be fully persuaded that even though the day of the tribunal of God is yet future for you, the verdict that will be declared there will be of no surprise to us. And we don't have to wonder about it. And we don't have to guess what it's going to be. But we can have absolute certainty right here and now that that final verdict in eternity shall infallibly be no condemnation for me and for you. None at all. Why? 
Because judgment day for the believer in terms of standing before the law is of a covenant of works for eternal justification or condemnation has already transpired. In the great eschatological event of the manifestation of Christ and the fullness of time, Him who came and on the cross, it was as if that verdict of final condemnation that was due to all this people had, act, had, had, had operated retroactively from the future into that moment, and He bore it, and He suffered hell on the cross. He suffered our separation from God. He suffered the darkness of God's curse. He suffered the punishment we deserve. He suffered the full force of wrath so as to expend completely every last drop of condemnation that was due to us. And so, as we're contemplating our own position or condition in the sight of God, and we feel quite miserable at times, and we feel quite wretched at times, and we feel like we've messed up, oh, brethren, I want to exhort you and encourage you to lift up your eyes and to behold the crucified and resurrected Son of God. Because beholding Him, you can have the absolute certainty and that moment that God is not not judicially angry at you. God has not excommunicated you from his presence. God has not turned on you so as to burst forth upon you with divine and eternal judgment, but that God views you in the midst of your sin as a loving father views his own son or daughter. Erroneous, yes. Provoking his displeasure in terms of his, in the moment, benevolent favor toward us, yes. But is not affecting in any way, shape, or form that perfect, absolute, all-sufficient, eternal, immutable, irrevocable, glorious, perfect righteousness we have in his sight. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for the cross of Christ. Thank you for the resurrection of the sight of the, of the Son of God. And we thank you that He has been justified in the Spirit, and that is Christ Jesus our Lord, risen and glorified, abides in your very presence, O oh Father, that He embodies our righteousness before your throne, that we are righteous in Him, and that we have no cause to fear with the legal terror of aversion that comes through the guilt of a conscience that fears eternal condemnation. But that now we have that joy and that song that Christ is our only boast in Your sight. Oh, Father, encourage our hearts with this truth. Oh, Father, have, have mercy on us. Father, May your grace expiate and, and may, may your grace work in, in our hearts in the midst of all the all my shortcomings and be able being able to ex explain these glorious truths, O oh Father. 
May your Spirit of God drive it home powerfully to our hearts, to our minds, to our understandings. May there be a true work of grace within us that corresponds to the truth and reality of this text so that we can have that boldness, Father, that boldness that that drew holy martyrs to, to face the most terrible of afflictions and sufferings of martyrdom with great joy because they had such assurance before you before you, Father, because they knew of the right standing with you in Christ. Oh, Father, give us that song. Give us that cry, that victory in Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.